Welcome back, movie fans, to another episode of Movie Matchup The Pretension. My name is Troy, and with me, as always, is Mr. Brad Anderson. How are you doing tonight, Brad? I'm doing fantastic. I'm super excited to be recording tonight, so I, I am can't too. Wait. Um, I, I've had a lot of fun with sort of our first uh, festival of sorts when we celebrated all things spooky with Spooktober. Um, and the next few shows that we're doing, specifically four shows, are going to be concentrating on the sci-fi genre. Um, i, I got to ask, have you come up with a, a catchy little phrase like Spooktober yet? I have not. I'm, I'm sorry I let you down, but... Maybe by the end of the show, I'll, I'll have something, you know, worked up in my mind. But as of right now, there's nothing catchy. So uh, the, so as of now, this is the uh, Troy and Brad untitled project? Yes, it is. It okay. Is. <laughs> but, you know, you can't rush genius, really. You have to just let it flow. Well, hopefully by the time we get this thing out, or even by the time we finish recording, we know what we're going to call this little stint of science fiction. Um, but, hey, let's let's tell everybody what we're here to talk about tonight, Brad. Okay, uh, we are here to talk about um, some sci-fi classics, um, both um, 80s films. One is Blade Runner from 1982, um, directed by Ridley Scott, um, and the other one is the Japanese anime classic Akira from 1988. So um, both films um, take place in the year 19, uh, 2019, in case you didn't know that. Did now, you were the first one to uh, kind of match these two up, and that was the thing that I noticed especially, because I'd watched Akira first and then watched Blade Runner, and when it when I discovered that they both take place in the year 2019, did, did you plan that? I did, I did. And they actually, both of them also take place after the Third war, World War, so there's a big connection between these two movies. So, uh, yeah, that's how much of a, a nerd I am when it comes to sci-fi stuff. Awesome. I, so will, I will admit that this this episode <laughs> is the one that's going to be bring all bring all the chicks to your door, right? Yes, yes. They're actually you know beating down the door as of right now. So, well, um, you you had said at the last episode when we kind of wrapped up with the um, Spooktober that this was sort of your niche. I, I got to ask then, um, and maybe we'll be talking about it tonight. I don't know, but um, science fiction in general. I mean, what's your thought about the genre? Oh, I, I love science fiction all the way back to. I mean, it pretty much starts with Alien for me, um, just because that's around when I was born. Like, not I wasn't born that early, but you know, I've seen Alien, and, and my expertise kind of goes from Alien to now. So, um, I love sci-fi. I, I really like the the science part of it, and it's just I don't know. It's really my thing. I, I really, really enjoy it. There's just I don't know, because I'm a technology person, too, so there's always that. Um, it's hard to explain, but, you know, there's just some genres that just speak to you. And when we get into talking about these films, I'll kind of talk about my experiences with my first time seeing these and how they kind of touch me, not in the well, creepy way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, so, I mean, does this just stay with film, or does it kind of go over to books, comics, or TV, or is it just strictly film-related? That's sort of your, where your passion for science fiction comes from. Um, I mean, I would say it's mostly in film. Like, I do science fiction games, like Mass Effect comes to mind, is like, you know, the sci-fi game of all sci-fi games to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I really like that. But when it comes to, like, comics and stuff, I'm really not into it as much. 
Um, it's mostly just in film. I guess I like the visual um, and a lot of a lot of um, especially with Blade Runner. There's also that like neo noir kind of detective stuff going on too. So yeah, I don't know. It just it just speaks to me. It really does. Well, how how versed are you then in sort of the monochrome classics? Because you just said that you know Alien, which is seventy ish on. Um, what what about the stuff from you know as early as Metropolis all the way up to you know the the monster movies of the you know forties fifties? Um, any Ray Bradbury? Well, Ray Bradbury has some science fiction stuff in there, but he has a lot of fantasy too. Um, do you are you versed in that stuff? Do you or do yeah. you just anything that's got color in it and you're done? <laughs> Yeah, well, like like when we talked about uh, Nosferatu, we talked about I had taken a film class, and the first film we watched was uh, Metropolis. Right. And I think that was one of the first times I knew that I appreciated film on a whole different level than most people. Uh-huh. Not saying that like I know more or anything like that, but it just there's just certain things that speak to me, um, and I think that really opened up a lot of doors for me um, into the genre of sci-fi. Um, I will have to say though, it goes from like, there's a big gap for me, um, like from the forties and the fifties. And then I'm trying to think of like some sixties and seventies, like sci-fi film, like, you know, Planet of the Apes, obviously, um, Star Trek is another one. I mean, 2001 Space Odyssey space. Yeah. Oh yeah. Space Odyssey. A lot of that, um, you know, Stanley Kubrick, I mean, um, yeah, so it's just. It's hard to explain, you know. It, you see a painting and you like it, and it, you try to explain to someone why you like it, and it's it's really hard to put into words, but you just know that it speaks to you. Well, what um, now? Just like horror, science fiction has so many different subgenres because you have sort of like your space operas or um, like Star Wars. You have sort of your technical science fiction stuff, um, which might be, um, I don't know. Your uh, what's a good example? I'm, I'm just drawing a blank here. Where you might deal with, you know, uh, Planet of the Apes to to a certain extent. Um, well, Terminator. Terminator. Yeah, Terminator science fiction. Science fiction. Act. Is there is there a different type of um, sub genre of science fiction that you're into? Is it does it have to be grounded in reality, or does it have to have um, I don't know more of a Star Wars type effect to it, or Star Trek, where it's in the future, or different, you know, a galaxy far, far away? Yeah, I definitely like um, exploring either the future or worlds that don't exist. Um, but I think the technology part of it is the thing I like the most, um, or sometimes even like the lack thereof. Um, you know, like Planet of the Apes is actually, you know, reverse in a way. Um, so I, I think it's just you have the ability to to explore different eras in different places that you would never be able to go, and these people have these... In some instances, they have certain gadgets or whatever that they just kind of set them apart. Right. Uh, and you know, and you kind of like, oh, I wonder how that thing works, or I wonder how this works, and how do they go to light speed and all this stuff. So, and actually, when it comes to like science fiction, like the Star Wars type, where it's happy ending stuff, uh-huh. uh, that kind of is my least favorite. I, I definitely like the stuff. That is uh, dystopian and um, post-apocalyptic most of the time. So that's okay. 
Yeah. Well, but, yeah. There's a lot of darkness in it, then I really like it. Okay. Well, this I, I can't say that this is my favorite genre. I always felt science fiction films and, you know, be it from the 30s all the way up to present day, there's some real gems out there. And I, I think we've got a good lineup um, this month when we talk about this particular genre. But I've always found science fiction to have fantastic ideas, but usually poorly executed as films. Oh, and that's um, fair. And that's definitely fair. And yeah. And you want to watch some stuff that's really bad. I mean, you go on the sci-fi genre on Netflix Instant, and you will see some absolute shit. <laughs> well, look at the the Sci-Fi Channel. I mean, it, it cranks out those just stupid, retarded, you know, science fiction horror films that are made on on a buck fifty. I mean, um, that was my problem growing up. Is when I when I found Star Wars. I mean, that was sort of a cultural revolution for me. Um, when when I saw that and became so engulfed in in that universe. How many knockoffs came off from that that were just so poorly conceived? And um, even, you know, Mad Max is probably a post-apocalyptic science fiction type film. Um, but look at what the Italians did with that. You know, hey, here's a rock quarry, some beat up cars, and let's put a mohawk and paint it pink and have everybody run around, you know, shooting at each other and crashing into each other. Um, it seems like this particular genre in the film industry, as soon as it gets a hold of a good idea, you get copycat after copycat that is just so subpar. Uh, and then when you do run across something that's good science fiction, which I think we'll discuss tonight, some of the ideas are so out there and it's hard to grasp onto. Um, you got to find somebody to sit down and talk about it and, and kind of really work out what is the theme in it, what is it trying to say. And those are the films that I do like. And, and I got to say, when science fiction hits it, and, and to me the first movie that comes to mind is 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, that movie's hard to get through. In terms of truly understanding, you know, what Arthur C. Clarke was talking about or even Stanley Kubrick. Um, but when it does hit, I mean, it, it only, it only gets better the more you see it and probably the older you get as, as you understand a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, I, you know, this is probably the next four episodes, um, that we do that are geared towards science fiction. I got to say, uh, you're the pilot on this or the guide, man. Cause, um, I got a lot of questions for you, especially about one of the films we have tonight, um, that you happen to pick for us. So, uh, how about we go ahead and go to a quick break and, uh, what are we going to talk about first, Brad? Uh, we're going to talk about Blade Runner. And I think we are in this, uh, our little clip here, I think we're going to debut our, uh, our little song that someone did for us. So I hope everyone enjoys it. Yes, um, it's a little bit of an unfinished product, but we do want to kind of give some love out to the other podcasts that are on the Rebound Radio Network. Um, we had somebody put together a small little commercial that we're going to debut. Um, we kind of want to hear everybody's input on it, too. So uh, send us your, your thoughts and comments to our email. But um, how about we take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about 1982's Blade Runner. Let me ask you a question. You never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Shifting views are skewing, opinions brewing, and dudes be cool with that. 
you heard me, we running this like a boss Yeah, I call it like I see it, announce it like Jim Ross Hell yeah, we love the good flicks, we regular screen hoppers We match it up and break it down like nobody can stop us Over dramatic much, I've had enough of your whining persistence You keep your trap shut and listen like right this instant We are brothers in the struggle to be heard is our word Pay some damn attention when lessons are served I fucking spit tech bits, yeah I kill a beat, I'll do it quick fast and I'll leave your zombie walking lobotomy dead cast rebound. All right, Brad, time to get into the time machine and head out to the year 2019. Um, specific, <laughs> specifically Los Angeles, um, as we talk about Ridley Scott's very interesting and troubled production from 1982 Blade Runner. Uh, before we get into the meat of this film, you know, I, I like to ask um, you or our guest sort of their opinion on some of the people that are associated with a particular movie that we're talking about. This film has sort of two iconic characters associated with it, the one being Ridley Scott, the director himself, um, and the second being Philip K. Dick, the science fiction author who happened to write a, a novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is short story, short story novella, which is what this movie was based off of. So let's start with Ridley Scott. I, I got to have your impressions of Ridley Scott. What are they? Um, well, we already mentioned one of his film, Alien. Um, and then when I was little, I, I loved Legend um, Beyond Belief, which is why would scary. you not? It has Tom Cruise and yes. uh, Tim Curry. And the, yeah, and it's Satan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I absolutely love and adore both Gladiator. And Black Hawk Down. Um, I remember seeing Black Hawk Down in the theater and thinking it was one of the most intense films I've ever seen. Um, Kingdom of Heaven, I defend that movie um, all the time to people. I think the director's cut of that is amazing. Um, American Gangster, I think, was good. Um, I think it kind of missed a little bit. And then mm -hmm. I think his last film, Robin Hood, was like Gladiator. But it was trying to be Gladiator, and it just didn't work for me. So I, for the most part, I do think Ridley Scott is a very good director. Um, his storytelling is not the best, but his definitely his visual style is something that I, I really like. Yeah, when I look at a lot of his uh, filmography from you know the 70s and 80s, I mean, th this guy made some movies that pretty much revolutionized the particular genres that he was working in, You know, specifically something like Alien. Um, but, uh, you know, I love, I love Black Rain. That was one of my favorite film, Michael Douglas films. Is that Michael Andy, Douglas? Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, Andy that. Garcia. And, um, it's sort of an unofficial, uh, sequel to, um, an old film with, uh, Robert Mitchum called The Yakuza. Uh, just because it has the same Japanese, um, actor who sort of plays the same character in both. Uh, Is that got the scene where the guy's on the motorcycle and he cuts the guy's head off? Is that? Kinda, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know if it cuts his head off. It wasn't that graphic, but. Um, I really, if you sit down and watch uh, the Yakuza from the 70s with Robert Mitchum and then put in um, Black Rain, I cannot remember the Japanese actor who plays a cop in both of them. And I don't even remember if it's the same character, but it just it, – they feel like such a complimentary type film, you know, even though they probably weren't designed as a sequel. I, I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have to do some research on that. But um, I'm kind of with you. I mean, even even stuff like Hannibal, um, I liked Black Hawk Down. Kingdom of Heaven, I really enjoyed the theatrical cut. I was blown away by the director's cut. And the thing about Ridley Scott is he's one of those guys that I don't think is afraid to go back and, and sort of better his work. Um, you know, I once heard that films are never finished. They're just abandoned. 
And so, you know, when you have directors like George Lucas or Ridley Scott or, um, you know, heck, uh, Oliver Stone put three versions of Alexander out. <laughs> I mean, I, I can kind of understand that, that they get to a point where they have to release a film, but they're always wanting to tinker with it because in their head it's not finished. Um, Robin Hood, the talkie years, I don't know, I, it, it was a miss for me. But um, I, I think he's such an influential um, director, producer, writer. Uh, well, let, let's move over to Philip K. Dick. What, what background do you have with this author? Um, I mean, he writes books. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I don't really – sadly, I don't really read a lot <laughs> as much as I should. And when I do read, it's boring financial stuff. So my knowledge of Philip K. Dick is he's written a lot of books that I like because they've turned into movies and I'm getting to see them. Um, but have you read the originals to them? I have. I've read, read – do androids dream of electric sheep because it's a short story and it's not very long. Um, I want to read a scanner darkly because I really like that movie. I think it's interesting. And, um, I think minority report or the minority report would be interesting to read, but sadly, man, like I don't really read that much genre stuff. I, I really don't. And I know I should, but I just, I just don't, I don't have time and you know, I can't play, video games and watch movies and read books i just I have to <laughs> i have to choose two out of the three and sadly books looks books, um, books are just for learning and i ain't learning i i gotta say philip k dick uh is probably one of my favorite authors of all time i mean i've, I've got two that i could you know like a good movie a, a good book you can go back and reread again and again and um philip k dick has especially the stuff he put out in the 60s are so good. Um, you know, to me, he's just up there with a, my other favorite author, which is Edgar Allan Poe. Forget everything as far as going back and, and if you want to start with a good Philip K. Dick book, if you've never really experienced anything of his, start with The Man in the High Castle. I think that's the one that he won a Hugo Award for. It is a fantastic book. It's a great read. It's a real page turner. Um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is fantastic. Ubik is very good. Um, but, I mean, if you go back and look at his short stories, I think his short stories translate much better into films to where when we start talking about Blade Runner and even talking about Dream of, Dream of Electric Sheep, I don't know if anybody's ever tackled um, a Philip K. Dick novel, um, you know, unless you, you're talking about a scanner darkly. And then even then, I'm, I don't know, maybe mixed results. But uh, you look at something like We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which is your short story that got turned into Total Recall. Second Variety was turned into Scanners. The Minority Report became Minority Report. Um, even uh, this year's, I think it was this year's, The Adjustment Bureau yeah. with Matt Damon was... That was the, short story. The yeah, Adjustment Team. Yeah. Um, he's, he's a fantastic author, and you will see a lot of themes pop up in his work that concern about what makes you know a human human... Um, questioning reality and if uh if you really dig his stuff get into something that he wrote like valis which is a trippy almost autobiographical take on a satellite you know beaming images to his head you know that i don't know he, he got very spiritual towards the end of his life and uh put out something like valis which is just very trippy but it's very interesting yeah and it, and it deals with religion it deals with reality and um again if you haven't read a Philip K. Dick book, you have to read The Man with the High Castle or The Man in the High Castle. It's amazing. Can I get it on my nook? 
Yes, yes, okay. it's fantastic. Then I, then I might actually read it because <laughs> I don't like to carry around books. There could be an audio book out there too, Brad, so you could play um, you know, some uh, video games while listening to it. You can get cultured while you do these other things too okay. that eat your brain away. It will balance itself out. All right. But um, let, let's talk about Blade Runner then. Uh, quick synopsis. The film depicts a dystopian Los Angeles in November 2019 in which genetically engineered organic robots called replicants, visually indistinguishable from adult humans, are manufactured by the powerful Tyrell Corporation as well as by other mega manufacturers around the world. Their use on Earth is banned and replicants are exclusively used for dangerous menial or leisure work on Earth's off-world colonies. Replicants who defy the ban and return to Earth are hunted down and retired by police special operatives known as Blade Runners. The plot focuses on a brutal and cunning group of recently escaped replicants hiding in Los Angeles and the burnt-out expert Blade Runner, Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, who reluctantly agrees to take on one more assignment to hunt them down. One last job. <laughs> one last job. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned something about this sort of being a uh, throwback to uh, film noir. I've heard this film referred to as future noir, and I think there's even a couple of books or a book out there that is called Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner. Um but let, where do you want to start with this, Brad? I mean, there has been so much stuff written about this film. Um, dissect, you know, th- this thing has been dissected by f- just everybody out there. People who smarter than us. It was a lot <laughs> smarter than us. And, you know, I got to encourage any everybody that if you ever get that, um, if you buy Blade Runner, you own Blade Runner, please make sure you own that fantastic set that they put out. That has, um, you know, just about every version of the film, the theatrical version, the international cut, the director's cut, the uh, final cut, the work print also has some great documentaries on there. Um, You have to own that version of Blade Runner if you really want to get the full experience of how, I don't know, monumental or epic this film is in terms of film history or cultural impact. But um, you're you're the pilot on this. What do you want to start with, Brad? Well, okay, I, I obviously when we watched it watch this film for the show it wasn't your first time um watching it oh, at least i hope not <laughs> no what what i did which um i don't know if you did the same thing uh i have seen the director's cut and the final cut a ton they actually yes. I, I got this i've seen the theatrical cut would when it was in the theaters in 82 so i was 10 there so that that shows you how old i am <laughs> hey guess um, what <laughs> I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and then the most recent time I saw it in the theater was when they re-released the final cut, and I drove down to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, to the Belcourt Theater and saw the film there again. So um, even when it came out on DVD or Laserdisc, you would buy you know, the director's cut or the international cut. What I did this time is I went back to the 82 theatrical cut to watch that because I had known and had seen all the other versions so many times, especially that, uh, that I guess, final cut that was released in 2007. I, I probably watched that so many times over and over again that I almost, you know, forgot what was the voiceover and the narration. Yeah, like, that's what and, I was going to say. The, the, uh, that original cut is basically known for that voiceover. And the happy ending. Yeah, and the happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so what – do you remember like anything about your first time seeing this film and what you thought of it like then and what you think of it now? Like When I was 10? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because this movie isn't made for someone who's 10 years old. Yeah, when, when I saw it when I was 10, um, it, it was kind of like, oh, Harrison Ford, here's Han Solo, another science fiction film. Um, and it 
was great to look at, but oh my god, was it boring at ten? Yeah, yeah, yeah. just horrible. There, there were, and let me say this: it was fantastic, even at ten years old. Maybe the first hour, um, but the sequence when you start to see Harrison Ford and Sean Young's um, relationship kind of blossom a little bit. Uh, which is about the middle of the film, all the way through the climax, which at 10 really didn't feel like much of a climax. When you get to the ending and, and you're kind of going, what does this all mean? You know, I was expecting a big shootout, something of that nature. It just didn't register as a 10-year-old. So my first impressions were it, it looked great. It was pretty. Which is kind of ironic because I believe the first time I saw this film, I was like 10 years old. My next-door neighbor, his dad, um, where I grew up, um, was people had a lot of stuff. I'll just say that. And, um, my next door neighbor had the best laser disc player I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> it like rotated the disc by itself. Like it flipped it and all that stuff. It was oh, yeah. crazy. Um, and I remember we would watch star Wars Terminator. And one day he said, let's watch blade runner. And you know, when you're 10 years old, Something called Blade Runner is sounds like the coolest thing in the world. Oh yeah! And sitting down to watching it, I was I can remember being ten years old and just being fascinated by everything in in knowing that at ten years old that I was not getting probably nine tenths of what was going on in the film, but just loving the way it looked and the rain and just I don't know. It was very emo before emo was emo and um and you were able to pick up on that at 10 not 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 particular um but i was able just to to grasp the film as a um exercise and just you know the flying cars the buildings with the big billboards on the side you know this gun that seemed to shoot like really like had a lot more punch than normal guns and you know the the way that the Asian culture was so intertwined, like there was a lot of things going on there. And, and I can just remember going home and, and trying to talk to my brothers about it, try, trying to talk to my dad about it. Just like being 10 and like really wanting to know what was going on. And it wasn't till you know, I got into like high school and stuff that I really kind of started to, to realize just how deep this movie was and how flawed it was at the same time. Really? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a late discovery for me in terms of a film that I really liked because you got to remember, Harrison Ford by this time in his career he had done two movies that totally shaped my childhood, which was Star Wars and I think Indiana Jones was the year before this. Yeah, that would have been eighty one because Blade Runner was eighty two. So <clears throat> if you're a kid and you go in and you see you know Indiana Jones or um, Han Solo on a poster, you go into a movie like Blade Runner and you're expecting, you know, that kind of level of entertainment. Nothing really heady, but more Saturday matinee style. And so my reaction to it at 10 years old was just meh. You know, it it looked good, but it wasn't anything that I was expecting from, you know, this this Saturday matinee idol of Harrison Ford. Um, so I'm kind of like you where I didn't really come to appreciate, you know, Ridley Scott's work or what was going on in this film, probably, you know, for me, uh, it wasn't until probably college. And I think that's when I discovered Philip K. Dick and went back to revisit Blade Runner as a result of, of reading, doing Android's Dream of Electric Sheep and, and reading some of his other books. 
Okay, okay. Um, so let's we'll get into a little bit of the film. Um, first thing I wanted to try to talk about with you was the setting, um, and a lot of people bring up the fact <coughs> that yes, it's 2019, and there's obviously something has happened. And I guess if you kind of do a little bit of research and you know the the source material, this is after the Third War World War, and um, it's rainy in Los Angeles, and um, the sun never shines. And um, I've always heard that there's like this toxic mist that's like in the air. It, mm-hmm. I mean, is that is that what you know as well? Yeah, I mean it's um, well, it's yeah, it's kind of hard to because we should first start off as saying if people who are familiar with the the original novella that this is based off of, it's quite a bit different than the film version, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, both of them have in common just sort of this future where um, the people have pretty much drained all the resources on the earth or what they're doing with the earth is just, uh, you know, slowly killing it, more or less. Because well, yeah, there's, there, there's, there's little... been some kind of fallout as well somewhere. I mean, kind of. I mean, there's been some kind of something that's happened that has destroyed the earth yeah, as we know it. There's even you know these uh, advertisements that are floating floating around on those sort of uh, metropolis-looking blimps in in the city that are talking about you know your second chance or a new start on off-world colonies, and so you you do get the impression that you know the world is overpopulated because even the chase sequence um, in in these films are kind of unique in the fact that it's not somebody just you know barreling down a sidewalk you know they're run it's just everybody's shoulder to shoulder it's so overpopulated. Um, but, you know, I'll say this about the setting. This is one of the few films that I think the city and the setting, this Los Angeles setting, are just as an important character as somebody is like Rick Deckard. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, um, and another, when you say, you know, the, the, with the people that inhabit the, the setting, it's, the, these are all the people that are left over that weren't able to leave because there's something wrong with them. They couldn't pass like a physical, they weren't cleared. So there's definitely these are the I wouldn't I don't want to say the lowest people but they're the people that there's obviously something wrong with them. Yeah, um, the de- defective because I think um, even the uh, toy maker says that he has you know degenerative disease or basically he's aging. Yeah, he's 25, he, but he looks 45. Yeah, and that's why he couldn't go off world. But you're yeah. you're absolutely right, and I think that was a part of the story that did follow through um, that Phil K. Dick you know presented in his novella that. You know, um, here, here's a world that everybody's pretty much left. Or if you're healthy, if you're, um, if if you have all the right genes and, and no problems, I mean, you're not going to be on Earth at this point. Yeah, and, and and along with that goes, you know, there's always, and and I wrote this in my notes that like, with the flying cars and the blimps in the air, there's always this visual representation of people in higher places. Um, so you have the people, obviously, on the streets who, when you look at them, they're not – they're obviously there for a reason. And then you see the police and you see the other people that are up in these high-rises that are the authority figures, and they visually look down upon these other people. And I think that's another thing that you can kind of pick up on a lot of stuff if you just – I don't know. Maybe I'm – Maybe no, if you, if you pay attention to it, because the, yeah. the animal thing comes up, yeah. Yeah. where there's no such thing in, in this universe, you know, you, you, well, I shouldn't say there's no such thing, in what they tell you, 
you can have a, you know, a replicant owl or a replicant snake or something that's genetically built, but to actually have the real thing, it becomes something that nobody can afford pretty much on the planet. Yeah. Cause there's the, the, the scene where she, he says, is this a real snake? And she says, if I could afford a real snake, I wouldn't be working here. Yeah. You know, it, it's, yeah, you get, I mean, you get the feeling that pretty much the animal population has thinned out for the most part, probably due to the to the overpopulation of humans. Which again, um, I really credit to the screenwriters for kind of putting in um, these small little tidbits of dialogue here and there, and for sort of Ridley Scott putting that together. That you you really learn about what 2019 is from just observing people and and just picking up on small things from the conversation, which are just a big plus in storytelling. Yeah. yeah. So do you think? And this is a question I wanted to, to kind of bring up. So has the culture been taken over by like the Asian culture or is it just a part of the amalgamation of like a world culture? Because there's definitely – there's geishas on a lot of stuff. Um, it seems like a lot of the people have Asian um, features. I, mean, I don't want that to sound bad, but like it's – there's definitely seems to be – something going on there as well. Um, and in 1982, like the world was kind of, you know, cars were being manufactured overseas, you know, technology was being manufactured overseas. So I don't know. I just want to get your thoughts. That's a good point. I mean, um, the gutter talk, uh, yeah, the Edward James almost character kind of, um, comes up to him initially and is talking to him. It's not just, if, if it's my understanding, it's not just, um, Japanese or Chinese. I mean, it's sort of a, uh, a hodgepodge of different languages, you know, Germanic, everything kind of come together. And I, I think this, this universe really does a good job of kind of setting up that with all of this overpopulation that you have in this Los Angeles of 2019, um, you're going to see all of these different cultures kind of um, take over what would be, I don't know, the white Anglo-Saxon culture. I mean, you and I are both probably white Anglo-Saxon. I don't know if yes. we really have a culture other than a shopping mall. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, I, I, that's a good question. I, I'd be curious because Ridley Scott, the other thing that pops up, though, is he does this film and he's also done something like Black Rain. So I wonder if the predominance of a Japanese culture, especially within this film, is his fascination with it, or if he's trying to say something about back in 1982. Um, did everybody think that, you know, in 30, 40 years uh, or in the future, that everything was going to be just so heavily influenced by Asians? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and, and like you brought up uh, Gaff, the character <clears throat> who with the street talk, it's like to me. The way he is, I mean, he's just an amalgamation of all the cultures into one character that you can basically see. This is what happens when, you know, the world becomes globalized. You get somebody with features from here and features from there. I mean, he has blue eyes, which is obviously like the white man kind of thing. So I don't know. I don't think that's by accident. Oh, I don't, I don't think so either. Um, and it's an interesting – it, I don't know. This, this is this. There's a lot going on in this film, even from the standpoint of I don't know class within the society. You know, the haves and have-nots are pretty predominant within this film. And um, while it looks like Los Angeles 2019, I'm reminded by that uh, that little exchange between 
Harrison Ford's character um, and oh, the police chief uh, Brian. Yeah, the yeah. character's name I can't I can't remember the actor, is but it like- it, yeah, De- Deckard is basically saying I don't want to do this. He's getting ready to leave, and he's basically telling Deckard that you know there's the police and then there's everybody else. And, you know, Decker turns around saying, okay, so you're telling me I don't have a choice. So you almost get the feeling that in the future, while you've got um, the police and what looks like a, I don't know, just a, a normal city infrastructure, it really feels like there's this whole totalitarian regime going on where, you know, there's if you're part of the cops, you're fine. Or if you're part of the corporation, you're all right. But if you don't belong to these two entities – um, you're just used, traded, and and who cares what happens to you, kind of. Yeah, thing. I mean that, that that could be like the Big Brother syndrome, you know. Like, there's always somebody watching, so you can either be a watched or a watcher. So, I mean, you might as well be. You gotta pick sides, I guess. What um, did you uh, What did you think about the performances overall? And I guess specifically, I want to talk about Harrison Ford and Rudger Hauer. Oh, I think I think uh, Rudger Hauer steals this movie. <laughs> Oh really? Okay. Uh, why? Uh, why do you say that? Well, okay. I'll start off with Harrison Ford, um, okay. just because um, there are times I really like his character, um, but he does a lot of things that make you question why you like him. Um, the scene with Rachel, where they finally kind of there's this tension of building up with them and. She and tries to leave and oh the the almost could yeah, be a rape scene <laughs> yeah the rape scene and it's not a rape scene but I mean it, but yeah, I mean it, it has that uh, it yeah. has that vibe and yeah you know and there are very straw dogs like yeah there's very pleasure there's pleasure models of replicants um and he like forces her to say these things beforehand so I'm trying to figure out maybe if there's a reason. Why he's having her say that? Like, if they're keywords or something that like replicants or the Nexus Sixes like can't if they say it or I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out why because it makes him hard to to like. Well, um, I, it yeah because I mean if he understands that she's a replicant and he treats her that way, he almost dehumanizes her. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I don't know. I mean, Harrison Ford's primary, I don't know, drive within this film. I keep saying, I don't know. I should know. I mean, we're talking about this <laughs> film, the podcast, but he is supposed to, for all intent and purpose, really bring a detective style to this, um, sort of that forties, you know, film noir attitude, stoic presence to this character. But at the same time, you've got a guy and, and I guess this will come down when we start talking about the theatrical version versus the uh, uh, the director's cut and maybe how the film plays out. Because there's a key component that's not in the theatrical cut that ends up being, I don't know, a huge plot twist in all the other versions. Uh, but when you're looking at the theatrical cut, you're looking at a, a detective for all as he's going through this hunting down of, of the five or six replicants, him using some losing humanity along the way. Yeah. And that becomes a scene where he almost seems to, I don't know, force himself on her and kind of put her in place that she's almost a machine while he's not. And I, I kind of – when you said Redgar Howard steals this movie, I'm, I'm almost with you, but I, I 
kind of want to give credit to Harrison Ford for his performance because he's got a very deep character who does some things that are a bit questionable. But at the same time, you can see just from the looks that he gives, he's questioning those actions himself. Yeah, and, but like in, in another scene, like he kills women in this film. He kills two women and he doesn't like – like the one woman get, I mean, he shoots her in the back, like as she's running away. And it just like, in a way, it just seems very weak to me that he, he couldn't, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that, that kind of bothers me that, Hey, you're killing, I know they're, they're Nexus sixes and that's his mission or whatever, but to kill a woman while she's running away, you know, and she's falling through like a hundred panes of glass. Um, and in the voiceover in the theatrical cut, he addresses that in the voiceover. Yeah. About, you know, oh, it'll be written up this way, but, you know, how should he feel shooting a woman in the back kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, and he's obviously flawed. You know, he's obviously – he drinks all the time and he's flawed and everyone's flawed and yada, yada, yada. But when it comes to <laughs> Rucker Hauer, it's like Roy didn't choose his path. Like it happened to him and he's trying to think of a way – to survive, and I can relate to. I mean, not survival in that sort of way. I only have four year shelf life or whatever, but I I can relate to the fact that like he is trying to do whatever it takes to try to figure out a way to stay alive. And how does that make him a bad guy? You know, it's he like murders everybody that he comes in contact. All humans. Okay, <laughs> well, I, <I'm, laughs> I realize that, but the, his mission is trying to figure out a way to stay alive like what makes him more different than the harrison ford character what i mean you sympathize with rudger howard why can't you sympathize with harrison ford's character i, I mean rudger howard because rudger howard killed men and not women no but i feel like deckard had an opportunity and it seems to me like there's something that he did wrong at some point in time where he's was not a Blade Runner anymore, then they had to call him back. I feel like Rucker Hauer's character, Roy, never got a chance to, to decide his own fate. His fate was already chosen for him. Um, and that, to me, seems like something that you would want to change. You would want to change your fate if you knew, I only have four years. Like A little bit, but I mean, it, this this I think this is the strength of this film is, you look at those two central characters and you find out which one's relatable. And I agree with you. I think Rudger Hauer is relatable to an extent that here's a man who's just trying to get answers to the questions, you know, about his past, who he is, what he is. He, you know, th this is a pretty central theme of Philip K. Dick literature is how do you know you are real? And um, everybody, you know, human once more years, right? You, you don't want to die today or tomorrow. And so you automatically empathize with maybe his intent of what he's trying to accomplish. But then at the same time, if you look at the story in and of itself, he's a cold-blooded killer. He will do anything it takes to get what he wants. He has no sympathy for anything other than his group of five or six other replicants. And they will destroy and kill anything in their way to get those extra years or those answers that he needs. Yeah, and I, and I think there, that can also be spun into to really Scott's kind of way of showing uh, the death scenes of the, the replicants as being very gruesome. 
I mean, I mean, there's when the one woman gets shot. I mean, it's you see the pain in her face, and you know, it's not. There's no mechanical parts falling out. There's no gears. Oh, it's very like bloody. That. Yeah, it's very bloody. It's very gory, and it Even, forces. I was going to say even Pris. I, I thought the most violent scene was uh, Pris towards the end there, the Daryl Hannah character, as she's convulsing on the floor and yeah. you have to put another shot in her in order to make her stop. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and Leon takes the bullet to the head, and like it's bloody. And these these replicants, regardless of what they are, bleed, and they obviously feel pain. And I think that's no, I, mean, I, I don't think they do because they're constantly putting their hands in, you know. These uh, things that should, you know, either freeze your hand or boil your hand alive, and, and they don't. I think that's the, you know, it's a good point because I don't know the, when when the one lady's getting shot. I mean, it, it looks like she isn't, it isn't pleasant. But do replicants feel? Isn't that the whole? They don't have emotion. They don't feel anything. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't no, know. It, it's a good point. I, I I think you're right. Ridley Scott makes those death scenes effective. But I guess the question then is, are you, I don't know, transferring your emotions on those characters or are you taking those characters at face value for the plot? Well, I mean, I, I guess I guess making them look and feel as human as possible and, and not going the route of you open them up and there's machines on the inside like the Terminator. You know, you right. don't, when you cut away the skin, there's not – like the skeleton underneath that's robot. And I think it's, I think it's those scenes that also um, solidify Harrison Ford's character of why he doesn't want to do this, that he questions, you know, when I, when I see this film, I like Harrison Ford's performance more and more. And I don't care if it's the, you know, obviously the voiceover um, on the theatrical cut isn't the preferred way of seeing this film just because of the happy ending and, and the plot twist. But it does give some credence to setting up that feeling of a, um, I don't know, a film noir type setting where you'd have these cop or detective films that are always doing a voiceover as they're trying to solve the case kind of thing. Um, but regardless of which you, what version you watch, I think Harrison Ford does something very well in that his reaction to this is basically saying, all right, here's a guy, depending on what version you're seeing, human or not, who is out there. And, let, you know, let's take it from the theatrical version. He's a guy. Let's assume that. So here's a man. He's out there hunting down these replicants. He's supposed to kill them, right? These machines. Yeah. And he even gives a line that, you know, technology is, uh, if it's great, it's not my problem. But if it goes wrong, that's when they call him in. And here's a man who, even though this should just be like, you know, unplugging a toaster or something of that nature, he's starting to get affected by it. Well, yeah, starting, and he, yeah, to lose it, and it's and it the voiceover maybe rams it down your throat and goes, "Oh, hey, folks, this is what's going on in his head." But I still think that um, his performance even carries through without that voiceover. That you really understand the pain that he's going through. He doesn't want to do this. And the the irony of it all is, is Deckard falls in love with the one thing he's out to kill. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I just I think I think that's what makes this movie so good is because it not only I don't know. It's it's one of the best films that I think really make characters question who they are, question think, why they do things. I think things. that's the point. Yeah, and I and I've never I've never seen it so subtly done. 
where, you know, like you just said, you, you have, you think Redgar Howard steals the movie and you have so much empathy for his situation. But when you look at the facts and the context of it, I mean, this is a cold blooded killer. Yeah. And, and it's hard, um, because I, I think another, he's definitely, Rucker, Roy is definitely a slave. These are basically worker robots in a way. Sure. They, they're sent off colony to, to work. And he comes back and basically, you know, kills a lot of people. Um, so slay, you know, robots, slaves, you know, coming back to kill their masters is another kind of like, I don't know. I just have a hard time with the Roy character because I feel like he was put into a situation where he was forced to work. That's all he was supposed to do. He's supposed to be a worker and he gets this opportunity to deal with the person who created him. And I don't know if I was in that situation, if I wouldn't handle it just the same way. Could be. I mean, he, they are slaves. I think most of them were designed with military type background. So they're designed as killers too, to a certain extent, which makes it, I think even more a bit interesting, but let, let's talk about the last part of this film because he basically gets, um, the toy maker is Sebastian, right? JF Sebastian. Yep. Sebastian. Okay. So, um, Roy and Pris sort of befriend Sebastian to take them to their maker. The maker basically says that, you know, the way you are, the way you are built, you have a, a time and that's it. There's nothing that can be done. If they inject some kind of protein to reverse it, doesn't matter. It's going to cause some other, yeah, a disease, etc. And with this knowledge, he lashes out not just at the maker, but also the guy that helped him out that didn't pose a threat, which was Sebastian. He kills him too. Well, Sebastian had helped. Remember, Sebastian said that there's some of his DNA in sure. them. So he played a part in the creation process. But he represents another human being that if you look at all of the people that Rudger Hauer comes into contact with, and we're talking about people here, he kills them. Yeah. So you, you've got this menace machine, genetic, you know, replicant, whatever, that it comes in contact with a human and it, it's going to just kill. So then you get to this fantastic little chase sequence through the roof where Roy is chasing Deckard and you get to the rooftop monologue. Now, I've got to ask you, what did you think about the ending? Does, <laughs> does it come out of left field or does it fit? No, it's the this ending is the worst part of this film. Um, Rucker Hauer has that amazing speech on the roof about what's he say something about tears and rain or something like that. Well, he's basically saying I've seen all of these things, all of these moments. You know, I've seen you know gunships off the Orion, you know, explode, all of this other stuff, and all of those moments and memories are are in essence going to just be gone like tears and rain. Yeah. And he and he dies. Which after saving Harrison Ford. Yeah, which is literally the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Like, I mean that that is such a cool thing to say. Like and it's powerful. And you know, he has a chance to let Deckard fall off the building and he grabs his hand and he saves him. So he kind of 
you know, his last thing he's going to do is he's going to save Deckard's life. And now Deckard has to live with the fact that he was saved by the one thing he was trying to kill. Well, do you think that that character, Roy's character, finally understood the key to to living on, to grant or give life rather than take it away? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that, that's a good way to look at it. Um, yeah, so by saving one man's life, he then gets to live on? Is that what you're trying to say? Kind of. I mean, you know, and again, when you're 10 and you see this film and you're like, and Harrison Ford isn't doing a whole lot in this film. You know, he wasted a couple of people and that's it. And you get to that ending and you see sort of the bad guy who has the upper hand, saves the hero, gives this fantastic speech and then dies. You kind of go, well, where did that come from? What does it all mean? And, you know, still to this day, I, I see people who really like the film, respect it visually, respect it storytelling to a certain extent, but then they turn around and criticize the storytelling and just say it and, and will basically say it's very anticlimactic. Um, I don't necessarily feel that way. I, I think, do you think it should have stopped right there? Like, do you think the film should have just kind of ended like that? Uh, no, I mean, no, I think, I think, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it here in a minute, you know, our preference between the cuts. Um, but I, f I don't know. You have your villain who has an epiphany right after he's done killing his maker, and then he sees his own mate, you know, Pris, dead, because this other guy killed him. And he's going through all of this stuff in his head, and, and he knows his time's limited because his hand starts clenching up, and he's just waiting for a few more minutes. And what you think he wants those few more minutes for is basically to exact revenge on, you know, Deckard, Harrison Ford's character, for killing, you know, his, his girlfriend or the other replicant. And you get to that speech, and you get to this epiphany that, Okay, nobody is going to be able to see or know of these things about me because I've only got four years to live, and I'm going to die right now. He knows that he's dying. I, I, I think I, – oh, I'm sorry, but the, I think the, the most beautiful thing about that is is the fact that – and I don't know if this is Ridley Scott or if it's Philip K. Dick, but in this version of the film, we're, we're assuming that, that Deckard is a real human being and – the Nexus 6, which is an android, is able to teach a human being something. So, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, that's that's a pretty cool thing to say. Like, you know, the thing that this guy was hunting down is able to teach him something about life. Yeah, and it's, it's like the core the, values of life. Yeah, or, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the one person he comes in contact with and he – he makes a choice at that point not to kill him. You know, the one human, I guess, in the theatrical version. And um, I, I just found that ending so great. I really, you know, to me, it is very climactic. It, it's like a character change. And as soon as the character has that epiphany and goes through that change, he dies. I mean, yeah. talk about a punch to the gut at that point. Because I think you're right. I think when you really look at that Rudger Howard character and just how, I think he's one of the best villains in film history um, or recent film history and that how menacing he is cold calculating, but at the same time, very charming. Um, and, and you get to the end of that film and he has a redemption, but I just, I love the ending to this film. I love that speech. I love the way it ends. And I like that part. I, I like, I like this part we're talking about. Yeah, I'm just I'm always amazed at people who um, 
maybe don't read as much into it as what we're reading into it and just say, well, the, the ending kind of fell flat. You know, why did, why did he let him go? I, I, I never understood that comment because at that point, to me, it's like, man, you never really understood um, what this movie was going for and what it was trying to say in terms of how do you define your existence, more or less. Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously this film is about what really makes us human. And that's a lot of what really Philip K. Dick wrote about a lot. I mean, is it the fact that we have emotion or, you know, we, you know, the, the, the point comp test, like, is that, is that really a way to detect who's human and who isn't like, so yeah, but okay. So we have this part, which is (laughs) now you want to get to the ending. Well, okay. So basically there's, there's two kind of endings to this work, right? Yeah. The theatrical one, which is... Um, Known as the happy ending. The happy ending. He's he's human. Finds out that um, Sean Young's character, is, is it Rachel? Rachel. Okay. Um, doesn't have an expiration date. And so they Told can, in voiceover. Yes, told in voiceover. They can write, oh, do you know where the... Uh, the so they're, they're driving off and you've got I that... I do know this. It's you, from The Shining. That's from The Shining. All of that uh, footage at the end is from The Shining. So... Um, so they're driving off and they're going to live happily ever after because he's human. She's a replicant, but she doesn't have an expiration date. Well, so, she, they don't know when her expiration date is, so they have to live life to the fullest. And shouldn't we all? Yeah, well, I, I think in the voiceover he just says, you know, there is no expiration. There, she didn't give a – so she, yeah, I guess she can go whenever. So in the director's cut or final cut, there is a unicorn sequence and you discover through the course of the film – um, Deckard is in fact a replicant and, um, they both escape. Well, I, I will, I will contest that. You'll contest that? Yeah. Okay. That you don't know if he's a replicant or not? Well, there, I think you could, I still think it's, I still think there's some things that you could say, well, maybe, maybe they just could read his thoughts or maybe he was getting so, why do his eyes look like every all the other replicants, yeah, know, and even the maybe, owl? Maybe the fact that like he was became too predictable. I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying. I really like to believe that Deckard was human. Like I really do. <laughs> I really want to believe that he was human. Okay, um, human replicant. Then you've got the the non happy ending where they're both running off. He could be a replicant. He couldn't. Um, but is very unsure as to whether you know they could be hunted down. Edward James almost character could be going after him. Who knows? Because he leaves the uh, the origami. Right. Which uh, was a reference to Deckard's. Anyways, I won't go there. If, yeah. if you're not going to buy into that, that's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, I do. But, you know, we didn't even talk about the origami stuff. But, I mean, it's, you know, there, there's times when Gaff will leave. There, there's the one where he leaves the origami with, I don't even know if this is in the, the, the actual version, but. He goes to see the lady at the club who's going to be naked the whole time, and he leaves the origami figure with the guy with the erection. Yep, that's in there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, it's, so, it's on all of them. And, and yeah. I, I think there's something going on with that, the where you know, he leaves all these little things, which are even more hints at, as far as what's going on with this film. But I, I don't know. I, I just want to believe maybe that, that Gaff just knows Decker too well, and Decker's becoming too easy to read that maybe – that's the reason he he can leave it for him. I don't know. I just this film is much more powerful to me if Deckard is a human. Oh, really? You so oh, that's interesting because 
I find this film more powerful if you come to the conclusion that uh, he questions and doesn't know whether or not he's human or replicant, or in fact that he finds out he's a replicant, that they're both replicants. I think that really sends home the message that, again, is kind of constant within a Philip K. Dick sort of universe that how do you know who you are? You know, how, how can you prove what real is for for the most part? And I find that a little bit more um, powerful in the fact that here's a character who is struggling with his own dehumanization and then to discover that he's not even human at the end of it. I find that yeah, to be more interesting. I like the fact that, that Roy turns out to teach Deckard more about life at that time than Deckard could to Roy. And Roy was an android and Deckard was human. Like okay. To me, that's that's – that's great. Like I, I love that. Now you don't, but either way, you don't like how the movie ends, regardless of theatrical director's cut. No, I, I, I hate the theatrical version. Like I, that's the, one of the reasons. There's two reasons why I don't watch it. The voiceover, <laughs> obviously, because Harrison Ford didn't want to do it, so he half-assed it, and they put it in there anyway. So it sounds like he's stoned out of his mind, and he could care less. And the happy ending. I mean, they just. Or drive. I mean, ugh, ugh. It's th- this film is such a downer, and then it ends with this ending that is so happy. Like, oh, we're gonna live happily ever after together. It uh, it bothers me. It really bothers me. Well, I'm I'm with you on that. I mean, I I watched the theatrical cut just because I hadn't seen it for a while, just to kind of get the taste of um, that version of the film with the voiceover. And the more I read about the voiceover and how it came about, I mean, it's, if I remember correctly, Ridley Scott got fired and then they did the voiceover to kind of explain what was going on in the film. And then Ridley Scott came back and, uh, you know, the film got released. I I think the preferred version is that 2007 final cut, because I think it keeps more in line with what Ridley Scott was trying to say with the film or do with the film. And then it also feels more like a Philip K. Dick movie. And I, I got to say of all the Philip K. Dick um, adaptations or, or whatnot, this is the best one. Obviously. Yeah. But I can see like why they would put that, the, the voiceover in because you show this to a group of normal movie going people. And there's a reason why this film didn't make a whole lot of money and is a cult favorite, but not like a mainstream favorite. It's because it's difficult, and if you take out that voiceover, it's even more. Like, I mean, yes, it's poorly written and poorly executed, but without it and not knowing anything else, like, I'm sure this movie is confusing as hell. Yeah, but I'm – well, I don't know. You watch that director's cut, and I I have no problem understanding the story, and I think it has a lot more meaning (laughs) to it and more impact. Um, But I can see where the voiceover was just a – you know, from a – from a movie auteur standpoint, it's just a bad decision. It'd be like taking 2001 Space Odyssey and going, we need to add, you know, how narrating this whole thing because not a lot of people understand what the apes mean and the star child at the end and stuff like that. Well, no one knows what the star child is. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, um, <clears throat> leaves it for debate. But uh, all right, let's uh, let's give some final – we've been talking a lot on Blade Runner. Um, yeah. final, final thoughts on uh, Ridley Scott's uh, masterpiece, Blade Runner. Yeah, and, and like – just like that. I mean, it, this is a masterpiece of science fiction. Um, it obviously wasn't the first science fiction film, but to me, it's one of the most important. And this is kind of a hallmark film for me as a, as a movie person because I can go back to this film and, and, and really like 
bookend like a part of my life where it's like this is this is where I really started to enjoy movies on a whole different level. And, and Blade Runner is is one of my favorite films um, because of the fact that you know if you find someone who has seen it. You can talk for almost an hour like we did, and we didn't even touch on <laughs> half the stuff. And no, by all means, you're you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, yeah it, it's great. It's this. Oh Lord, I love it. I'm I'm with you. I think this film pretty much has it all. It has uh, fantastic visuals, which um, set it apart from most films, not just science fiction. Fantastic story, and I'm with you. I mean, it's rare you find a movie like this. And you could, you know, right after you see it, right after you walk out of the theater or, you know, done watching it on Laserdisc or DVD, <laughs> uh, Blu-ray, whatever, you can sit around and you can talk about different interpretations because, you know, like you said, you you find this fascinating about Redgar Howard's performance or his character. I may find this more fascinating about Harrison Ford. And um, this is one of those few movies, you know, I think when science fiction works, it works not just by – kind of showing you what a future could hold or what science can do as far as have an impact on us. But I think good science fiction movies also question, are you heading in the right direction as people? Yeah. And, yeah. and, this, and def- this is, this is smart science fiction at its best. Oh yeah. And philosoph- this is philosophical, not just smart, but extremely philosophical. And I, I think um, that is directly attributed to, to source material filled K Dick. And I, I absolutely love it. Um, so I'm, I'm with you. I mean, it is a masterpiece through and through. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And, um, when we come back, we're going to dive into some Japanimation specifically from 1998, uh, 1988. 1988. Oh my God. Did I say 98? There you go. Yes. 1988 Akira. Are you serious? Podcast. Best of the left.com. Linoleum knife. 35 millimeter hero. Chin versus Penza. Family movie night. Bloody good horror. Night of the Living Podcast. Mail order zombie. Outside the cinema. Popcorn mafia. Perhaps you'd be interested in Gleecast. First time caller podcast. Showshow.podomatic.com. The David Pakman Show. gentle listeners i'm fozzy bear there are a lot of podcasts out there and it's impossible to listen to them all that's where the podcast podcast comes in on the podcast podcast we have very special guests from some of the best shows on itunes covering everything from movies to television to literature to pop culture and politics on the podcast podcast you can listen to these guests and decide if you should check out their show or keep on moving find us in the itunes store by searching for me fozzy bear that's f-o-z-z-i-e-b-a-r-e Welcome back. We just finished our very long and elaborate discussion over Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, and we're about ready to dive into some Japanimation. Now, Brad, before we start talking about um, Akira, I, I have a confession to make. Japanimation is not my thing. Okay. It's um, I, And it's not my thing because I haven't been exposed to a lot of it. What What's your take on Japanimation? I mean, it... Again, you, you kind of put the, these two together and you have a reason for it. So I'm assuming Akira, you've watched a few times. Yeah. Um, okay. Here's a little – we got a little feedback and people wanted a little bit of background on us. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my story with Akira. Um, in high school, um, I played a lot of sports. Uh, you, could, you would consider me a jock. Um, but there were some weekends when I didn't go to parties. I would hang out with another group of friends and we would watch – um, Kung Fu films and anime films. And, um, 
One time a guy brought over um, a VHS because at that time it was in the transition period between DVD and VHS. And we're, we watched, we're covering all the formats with this show. I know, you know right? that? <laughs> It was a Betamax, you know. So anyway, so I watched this film for the first time and it just opened my eyes to everything else that was out there. And I went and I, I we had this place in the mall that, that sold um, for a lot of money, um, anime films. Um, and I just asked the guy, I said, look, I want the best ones that are out there. And um, I got, you know, Akira and Ninja Scroll and Appleseed and Ghost in a Shell and really just took it to a whole other level with me. And, and ever since then, I've just been fascinated with their animation style and everything that goes with it. And I've been, you know, it's, it's been something that has been a part of like my movie watching for a long time. Wow. Yeah. So. I mean, Japanimation for me, I think started with Akira, <laughs> uh, because I, I managed to see it in the theater at like one of the midnight shows, um, when they were showing older films, like, uh, I, I think it got released in the, in the States in like 88, 89, but I think I saw this like in 1990 at a midnight screening somewhere. Um, but most of the time, I discovered Japanimation films from just other films. So as an example, I'm 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 a huge Hong Kong Asian film action nut. And so when I discovered that like Jackie Chan's City Hunter was based off of a Japanimation series, TV series, and film series, that's how I found City Hunter. And I love City Hunter. That's probably my favorite. Um, but then you would see Wicked City, which was a Hong Kong film. I did not know was a Japanimation film. So I went back and watched the Japan, Japanimation Wicked City and oh my God, you know, vaginas with teeth. That was just crazy. Too, yeah. too much for me, man. <laughs> um, but you know, I've seen Ghost in the Shell. Um, I, I've probably seen, you know, Record of Lotus War, I think is another one. Project A, I liked a lot, which reminded yeah. me sort of a girl school version of Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I haven't watched as many of these, uh, types of movies, maybe as you have. Um, so I, I, I come into this, not an ex, I'm not an expert at anything, but you know, except Jackie Chan movies, we'll you bring a Jackie Chan movie on. We're going to town. Okay. But, uh, let's, uh, let's start talking about Akira, um, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo, Otomo, Otomo. Um, quick synopsis. The film depicts a dystopian Neo-Tokyo in 2019. Same year. Yes. Um, the plot focuses on a bike gang leader, Shitaro Kanade, Kanada? Kanada. Uh, Kanada, whose close friend, Tetsuo, inadvertently gets involved in a government secret project. On his way to save Tetsuo, Kanada runs into a group of anti-government activists, greedy politicians, irresponsible scientists, and a powerful military leader. A final confrontation sparks off Tetsuo's newly gained psychic powers, leading to bloody death, a coup attempt, and the final battle in Tokyo Olympiad, where secrets were buried 30 years ago. Oh, Brad, where <laughs> shall we start with this one? I want to hear. I want to hear your impressions. I, I really want to hear what you have to say because I don't know. I'm, I'm real curious. Well, you know, since we're talking about. You know, the first time that we saw these films, um, when I saw this thing like back in 1990 and I saw it in the theater, it, it kind of blew me away. Specifically because animation up to that point, I guess the most I'd been exposed to were maybe the Walt Disney stuff. And, you know, I've 
rescuers down under and (laughs) whatever else, you know, Little Mermaid. I I don't even know if Little Mermaid was out when I saw this, but um, I quite enjoyed Disney animation, but I never saw animation that would tackle anything very smart, I guess is what you would say. Real kid stuff, light. When I saw Akira, I guess two things really hit me was, first of all, the animation looked incredible. I mean, it, it, just the way it moved wasn't like typical animation I'd seen before. And then the second thing was the violence in it and the adult themes and content I just hadn't expected or seen before in sort of an animated movie like that. So, um, I've always been just fascinated with Akira because, you know, you get the description of like watching a painting and sort of being taken aback by its colors or what it presents and, and having a reaction to it. Akira is one of those films that I have a reaction to it that I'll be honest with you. The last half really confused me and I always have to kind of work through it to a certain extent. And it, and the ending to this film almost has a 2001 star child type ending to it. Um, but much like 2001, there's a lot in this film to dissect and kind of talk about. And I know there's a lot of themes going on in this film that I just totally haven't grasped on. And look, the, the, the source material is like almost 2,200 pages. And they try to kind of condense that into a two hour film. So now the guy who directed this was the same guy who wrote the manga, right? Yes. Okay. And from what I've read, he wasn't finished with the series when he was finished with the movie, which is why it kind of ends differently. Yeah. The, the, this and in, in, in the source material, it's kind of like the, the kick, the kick ass syndrome where they had to kind of split off because it wasn't finished. Um, when it, when it got, was being made. So they had to kind of spin their own kind of ending. Okay. Um, now, and so, it's, it's my understanding, too, that, I mean, this was pretty groundbreaking for animation in general, because one of the things that I read that really fascinated me was, and this is just a little quote, most anime is notorious for cutting production corners with limited motion, which I can see that in some of the older Japanimation I'd seen um, from, like, the 80s, yeah. um, such as having only the characters' mouths move while their faces remain static. Akira broke from this trend with detailed scenes, lip-sync dialogue, a first for an anime production, and superfluid motion as realized in the film's more than 160,000 animation cells. Yeah, and and you see this film. Um, I have the Blu-ray, and I have to say that it is one of the best transfers I have on high definition. I mean, it looks amazing. Um, really? One of, the, one of the people I always go to is when the motorcycles drive away or they're, they're in motion. Their, uh-huh. their lights have a tail. Right. And it just, I mean, it, the way they do it, like, that isn't how light really works, but it's so amazing to see on screen. And, and it's just so, it just gives it so much character. Um, yes, the, the, the story is is difficult. Just like Blade Runner, there's a bunch of stuff going on, and they, you know, there's characters that pop in and out, and... You know, there's kids that are old and like there's a lot of stuff going on. But just if you just watch it on the surface, you're amazed by just how they make smoke look and they make, you know, explosions look and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it it really is 
groundbreaking still to this day. I mean, well, this Neo Tokyo, I mean, kind of like what I said with Blade Runner, that that Los Angeles in 2019 is as much a character as you know the Roy and Pris and and Deckard characters. I, I found this city, this Neo Tokyo, was just as I don't know had as much presence as anybody else that was in the film. I, I really enjoyed it. And you know what? I could see these two, even though one's animated and one's kind of model detailed, they just, I, I don't know how this, you had to have done this on purpose, but I really feel like these two cities would exist in 2019 in this universe. They, they looked very similar to some extent. Exactly. And I mean, for its time, and I've read different things, this, this film cost somewhere between eight and ten million dollars in 1988 for an anime film. I which, can see it. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, it is. It is amazing, and that, and this is actually one of the only films that I watched the dubbed version for, uh-huh. because they've gone back and re and done a lot of a lot of work with making the dubbed version actually very good and lip synced with the with the original. Um, a Japanese version. So it's actually, they did a very good job with it. I have watched the subtitles before, but for some reason, I, watching it dub doesn't really bother me. And I can't say that for a lot of, a lot of films. So. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily have a problem watching the Japanimation. I have watched dub just because I never see the, the limps, the, the limps, the lips out of sync. Um, whereas it becomes a bother watching dubbed on a, on a live action film. Yeah, because every time I've seen Akira, I, I think the latest incarnation I own is that 2001 Pioneer Steel Ten Special Edition they put out. Um, yeah, yeah, that's which, which was awesome. But uh, what? So let, let's just get to the ending. I got to ask you. Okay. <laughs> my 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 brain can't wrap around the concept of Akira. So let me just walk through this so that I got this correct. Akira was actually one of these little kids at one point. Yes. Okay. Um, there was three of there's actually four of them, um, and Akira was probably the one that showed the most promise. Obviously. Well, he's um, the one that grew exponentially in power to the point where the government couldn't control him. Yes. And so they end up basically splicing him up. Correct. Yes. Okay, and he and he's the one that's in jars. He is. Okay, but he's not dead. Or well, his power isn't dead. His power. So, I guess my question is: Does is what, Tetsuo gain his power, or Tetsuo get his own power that rivals Akira? And is Akira helping the two kids at the end, or is he helping Tetsuo out? Tetsuo has his own power and is is fascinated by the fact that Akira at one point in time was this, this being this entity that people worship there. I mean, there is a godlike figure to Akira, right? Because a lot of the, the people, the street people always mention Akira. Yes. And, and he, he, won- he was the cause of, I guess, Tokyo's last destruction 30 years ago. Yeah. 30 years ago. So okay. he being Tetsuo and being that, he was this little boy who was picked on and has no power. And even in this gang, he plays second fiddle to Kanada. The chance to get this power and then to overtake someone else um, really becomes his mission. Um, and, and granted, this is—I've seen this film. 
probably 50 times. So this is how I see it. This could be totally, you know, someone else can see it totally different, but this is how I take it. Um, I've actually never finished the, 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 uh, the, manga? the comic it's based, the manga that it's based yeah. on. Um, you know, I like to just take this film as it is. <laughs> sure. Um, well, and, and from what I read, I mean, they're two different story arcs yeah, too. Yeah. Um, so Tatsuo's main goal is to become God. To evolve into God. Cause I mean, this, yes. this movie does tackle sort of man's evolution. I mean, that's one of the things going through this. Yes. Is, it is very, there is, there's a very heavy religious. I mean, I believe Akira means God in Japanese. I think. Did Maybe you look I, that up or you just, <laughs> I'm not just putting it out of my Okay. Ass. That's cool. <laughs> I mean, no, we can speak German on this podcast, but, you know. No, I, I, you do get that sense of this sort of, uh, you know, not Shintoism, you know, Japanese culture of ancestor veneration or something, but, um, gosh, almost, um, uh, Christianity themes a little bit, Nikira. Maybe that's a stretch, but you always get this. No, uh, no, there definitely is. I definitely agree with that 100%. Yeah, you you get the sense that, you know, it is man kind of given these powers and then what does he end up doing? He ends up being probably an incredibly destructive force for everything around it, um, which, you know, that, that seems pretty pessimistic. It's like, so we get more power, we're not going to better ourselves or better the, anything around it, we're just going to destroy everything. No, I mean, it's the uh, Dr. Strangelove syndrome, you know? It's like you always have to build the bigger bomb. Sure. Um, but... So outside of the visuals, from a storytelling standpoint, do you find Akira to be a strong movie when it comes to storytelling? I do because it, like Blade Runner, um, you find someone who's seen Akira and you literally can have hours and hours of conversation with them. And I, I, I think that's why I like these films so much is because you can watch it and think of something totally different that I would never think of and – I would be like, wow, you know, I never thought of that, but that's definitely true. You know, I, that is what good art is, you know, and, and movies are, to me, a great source of art. Yeah, well, Akira, and maybe I'm showing my cards a little too early, I find the last 20 minutes like it's rushing to an end, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and, and I, I, I can see that. Because a lot of stuff happens and none of it is harped on for more than like ten seconds. Yeah, I mean, there's a you made a good point about characters kind of jumping in and out. Um, they do. I think it's really handled extremely well. But um, when you get to the end, it starts to lose me because they're trying to wrap up um, all of these little threads. And I almost feel like this. You probably don't hear this a lot with movies. I almost feel like there was another extra thirty or forty minutes. To the, I wish there were an extra 30 or 40 minutes to the yeah. ending to kind of give me a little bit more um, story instead of just kind of going, oh, I got my laser, you know, I'm going to chop your arm off and then the satellite's going to, you know, all of that stuff visually looks great. And man, I, it was certainly some of the best eye candy you could see in science fiction. But I, I think the storytelling moves too fast at the end. Yeah, I mean, and you basically have. Uh, Kay, who is a is a female character, and basically all she is in the film, her her main goal is to be a medium for these little kids that have, who 
can't physically do a lot of stuff, but mentally they can take over her mind, and she can do it for them. And, and she basically. she was the girl that um, Kanata meets at the beginning. That's the yes. extremist, the terrorist, yes. more or less. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I mean that that's basically her job is to be a medium for those kids to help fight off Tetsuo. And that's that's basically what she's there for. You know, I mean, in in is that fair? Like to have a character that you're invested with for you know basically from 20 minutes on to the very end. I mean, maybe, maybe not, but like, I can see, I can see where you feel like things are rushed at the end because I definitely wish, like you said, there's another, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes of this movie because it is so fun to watch and to look at that, you know, A, I want it to, to last as long as it can, and B, you know, there's this part where the universe is created <laughs> and. Yeah, so the, he he basically, I mean, Tetsuo gets taken to another universe by the kids, so that he can be a god, right? Well, he they basically destroy everything, and then everything is brought back to new. I guess. I mean, there's a lot of deconstruction and reconstruction of stuff going on, but they kind of have to sacrifice themselves. And Tetsuo with Akira to kind of make sure that this – they're trying to not have it happen again. Right. Um, and keeping Akira not really alive but having his parts still around was still too much um, of a, a risk for you know Neo-Tokyo. Right. No, I, I love the – I think the strength of this story, especially in the movie – was you know the relationship between Tetsuo and uh, Kanata? I hope I'm saying that right. Um, it's kind of like Canada, but Canada, <laughs> Canada. Canada. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and when you get to the confrontation with them at the end, because you you know that they grew up together and sort of this relationship and trust, and that he's the guy that ultimately is going to try and you know stop him and kill his friend, and then you have all of these other things kind of being thrown in around it. Because obviously, if you have this person that has this huge psychic power, a laser ain't going to stop him. You know, cuts his arm off. He's gonna mesh it with something else. I get that, um, but uh, that's the only fault I have with this film is that when you get to the end of it, the th- and again, personal preference, the the strength of the story for me was the relationship between those two, and it didn't come to a, I don't know if this makes sense. It it didn't come to a resolution for me. There wasn't that sort of gut punch that I had when I saw Rudger Howard's epiphany and and the whole exchange with you know Harrison Ford. Yeah, and and, that, and that's fair. Um, you know, I, I've seen a lot of things where people say, you know, Tetsuo is the devil and Kanada is supposed to be like God and they're fighting it out religiously and like very religious way of looking at these two characters. And, you know, it's very – I don't know. There, there, There's a lot of things going on. Like there's the – you know, we haven't really talked about the military and their role in things. And well, science too. I mean, I noticed, and and I could be wrong, but this film has a lot of social unrest in the backdrop throughout the entire thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's yeah, yeah, there there is definitely anti-government. You know, all around this film. Um, so you know, do you? And I'm just going to ask you this: one of the things that I kind of picked up on, and and maybe the movie isn't saying this or not, but. You've got the military and you've got science 
playing such a pivotal role in everybody's life in Neo Tokyo in 2019. You have all of this social unrest, and then you have this repression of a god, Akira. I mean, they're they're holding it in the basement, you know, of of the city. Yeah. Are they trying to say that you know, without that religion within your life, um, you will have unrest? You know, society can't function without it. I, I definitely think that that's what I've always taken from it. That if you that you know, if man. And this this is what this film is not me. I'm not saying anything religious or anything like that. But when man turns to science and they get rid of God, then it basically, you know, what happens is, you know, man destroys itself is basically what, you know, I've always taken from it. Like they literally, you know, have a God and they put it underground where no one can see it. And you see the scene where like, Everyone knows that like Akira is coming back and they're, they're coming to watch and all this stuff. And there's like this these zealots out there and stuff like that. It it really shows that like people in this film. I, I don't want to you know blanket everybody, but in this film that the people around in Tokyo wanted this religion. They wanted something to believe in because the government is bad. You know the politicians are bad. You know, the scientists have done all this stuff and and their world was destroyed once and they probably feel like it can be destroyed again at any moment. Yeah, without a moral compass or, or something that religion may provide. I mean, you, you hear about, you know, knocks on extremism and I'm not I'm not saying that at all. But um, I, I always found this film kind of interesting because the more I do watch it, the more I get this sense of somebody and I could be off, you know, in left field by myself, but I uh, always get the sense that the creators are trying to tell us that, you know, yes, you can have religious extremism. That's very bad. You know, maybe something like what Kevin Smith is doing in Red State. Obviously, that's horrible. But the lack of that moral compass or the lack of religion or something to believe in other than science and technology is just as bad, oh, if, yeah. not, if not worse, because you have somebody who gains the power of God but doesn't have the compassion, wisdom, or of God uh, of a God, and look what they do. Yeah, yeah, I, like, and I'm on that same boat with you. Like, that's how I've always felt. And as someone who appreciates that, like, I just think that's we live in a society where, at one point in time, religion was very taboo in film. Um, right. Well, I, I think it still is to some yeah, extent. Yeah, I you mean, know, like you said, Red State, and it's like you know that. You know, it was a very small release. I mean, a that's kind of the way Kevin Smith wanted to do it. That's probably a bad example of a film, just because of the way Kevin Smith wants to handle stuff now. But you know, religion is very taboo. You know, you never speak politics or religion with somebody. And this film walks that fine. It probably you know it it bumps up against the line. Oh, I think it, it washes it, itself it, in. I mean, because it every, doesn't. It's not. It's subtle. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. Like it doesn't. You know, there's no crosses, there's no Buddhas or anything like that. Like, it's all, you know, Akira, yes, is a god, but a godlike figure, but there's never anything super heavy handed about it. I mean, this is just our interpretation of the film. Right. Well, and I think, I think, I, I know why you chose this one to match up against Blade Runner then, because 
it it's it's science fiction at its best when it does kind of tackle those social political issues, even religious issues. I yeah, mean, and wraps it all up. And and while I think, um, I don't know, I you know, like like Blade Runner, Akira is one that I have no problem going back and watching again and again. Even though I, I get the back end, you know, is a little convoluted. Um, I still just marvel in all of the things that are going on in the background and all the little subtleties that it's trying to point out. You know, there's so much so much graphic violence in this film that just kind of shocks you. Yeah, the first time you see one of those little kids and he's with the adult and they just the military just lays waste to that guy and it is they probably put about 300 bullets in this guy and it is unbelievable how graphic it is and yeah or tetsuo in the hallway of the hospital and he just basically explodes those guards and the doctor yeah yeah i, I mean it's just, it's so grotesque but at the same time i mean um i don't know i just i i never would have looked at akira based on its cover art or synopsis or anything of that nature and would have thought that i would get something that would be discussing politics religion Lack even thereof. drug use. Like, we yeah. haven't even talked about the drug use. I mean, there's those. There's a pill on the tin. Like, when you buy the tin, there's a pill on it. And Canada's jacket has a pill on it. I mean, there's a definite underground drug usage going on in this film as well. Yeah, and, and again, you know, drugs sedate the masses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and then, yeah, I mean, I appreciate, like, the reason these two films are so special to me is because we can do what we just did you know we can talk and we can talk about oh well you know this probably is this and this is probably that and and that to me is what film is all about right and oh i agree with you 100 percent there yeah well um final thoughts on akira i mean not only is this one of my favorite films but it's it's one that is important to me because it it's basically a doorway and it opened up a door to so much other stuff in my life that, you know, it's it literally one of one of my favorite movies because of what it did for my movie going experiences from the the time I saw it from the first time till now. So, yeah, that's I, I I'm with, I think this is a pretty good uh, gateway drug to Japanimation. <laughs> um <laughs> I really looks, like we can't emphasize enough. This film looks amazing. It does. And it's not like anything that you've seen. I think even currently, I'm trying to think of even recent animation from uh, Miyazaki. Yeah, I was going to say Miyazaki is probably the closest thing that we have to. Um, I really like. You but know, even even Spirited Away and stuff like that. Uh, and Princess Princess Modern, okay. Yeah, I've seen those. I probably am going to get hate mail for this. Miyazaki is a hit or miss for me. I don't think everything he does or everything he touches is gold. Um, but again, that could be that, you know, my I, I general lack of knowledge when it comes to Japanimation. Um, but I'll say, you know, the thing about Akira is I still don't think I've run across a film that looks as good as Akira from the standpoint of hand-drawn animation on film. Agreed. I mean, it, it just is groundbreakingly good. Um, and I ha again, I haven't, I haven't seen something to, to maybe come close, but I haven't seen anything you know, surpass it. And I think in terms of science fiction, this is a fantastic story. It's got a lot to it. Um, it seems a bit heady, and there's a lot going on, but I think anybody could enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm right there with you with everything you said. Like, 
Yeah, I, I I set these up for a reason. Like the the whole Neo kind of way, you know, the Neo Tokyo and kind of Neo Los Angeles in 2019 after a huge war, like was something that connected these two films. But I mean, there's also like the the lack of religion in both films and just you know the ambiguity of a lot of things. So yeah, I, I tried to kind of sneak one up to kind of see how it would go. And I, I think, I think well, was- there, there's even other stuff, the, the little toy references. I mean, yeah. toys, toys are very dangerous in this film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a lot of weird scenes in both films. <laughs> yeah. I, I have seen both films prior to us talking about them. Um, when you watch them back to back the way we just did and you know, they're about what, six years apart from each other. I'm yeah. totally amazed at how both of these films are so similar. There is more going on that I, I guess are comparable than there is in differences. Oh, definitely. So it, it now comes the hard time, Brad, the very, very oh. difficult choice. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, it's time to pick between these two juggernauts of science fiction. All right. Do okay. I have to go first again? Uh, I can if you want. I mean, we're we're talking Ridley Scott in the groundbreaking science fiction Blade Runner, or um, Otomo's groundbreaking science fiction anime Akira from 1988. The question is, which of the two films is the best? Uh, do you want to go, or do you want me to go? Uh, you go, because I I think if we have a tie. We have someone that tweeted us theirs, so we might have a tiebreaker. So. Okay. Um, this one's tough because of all of the Japanimation I've seen, even though, like I said, City Hunter, I really enjoy watching. I think Akira is the best Japanimation I've ever seen. And if anybody out there has a list that I need to go through, please get it to me. I'm, I'm more fascinated about this. We have another Japanimation film we're going to talk about this month um, that I've seen before, but I'm really curious to dive into this aspect of Japanese cinema. Um, Akira just stands out as one of the uh, films that maintains rewatchability, high rewatchability for me, and I get a lot out of it every time I watch it. And the same can be said for Blade Runner, so I have a real tough time choosing between these two. But I will say that um, Philip K. Dick is where my heart lies, so I'm gonna choose Blade Runner over Akira. Okay, I, I kind of I, I anticipated that, so <laughs> uh, and not because I want to be contrarian or anything, but I, I will choose Akira because uh, not only is this an important film for the masses, it's also an important film for me. Um, so, and if we're going off the uh, theatrical cut, which is the one we watched, um, because that's the one we reviewed then Akira wins a little bit easier than if it would have been the final cut. So, uh, Yeah, I'll give you that. If, if we're going from the theatrical Blade Runner <laughs> to the theatrical Akira, Akira wins hands down. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, I think if you look at the story as originally conceived by Ridley Scott or the final product that Ridley Scott brought to us, um, I, I think it has a bit more coherency and works throughout the entire film, whereas Akira, for me kind of falters at the end there but i think like i said i if they ever redo akira make it longer you know i know that probably won't happen but um i just i really and i and now after watching akira i think i've only read the first two volumes of the graphic novel i'm kind of interested to go back and finish it and to see where that story goes 
Um, because I think there's so man, you you picked two good movies that just have a lot more going on in them rather than just the cinema stuff. I try. So our buddy uh, Mike from the ILC uh, tweeted at us because we we wanted to get people's votes, and he voted in, and his vote is for Blade Runner. So Blade Runner officially wins this episode. Way to go, Harrison Ford. Yeah, yeah. Keep um, raping people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hey, let's uh, let's talk some feedback. We got some more feedback in this week. Uh, it seems to be growing a little bit. Um, where do you want to start? Um, why don't you read the first one we got? Because you love to talk about the French. Oh, yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we got an email from Joe. And the email was basically entitled Aversion to French Films, question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation mark. Um, and Joe this and I – This is in reference to you. This is – yes, this is to me. So um, because of my uh, not liking things that are French. But um, I'm going to read two emails basically, a little bit of both uh, because the initial email that Joe sent me got me to respond to him. And we've been talking back and forth. And uh, I think based off of um, some things that he sent us, we could have a new theme after the science fiction marathon wraps up. Um, but I'll get to that in a second. So uh, from Joe, after hearing of your aversion to French films, he's talking to me, of course, I thought I would send a list of essential French films that you need to see if you call yourself someone versed in the world of cinema. I know that many people think French films are all frou-frou nonsense, but it is hard to deny that the French invented many techniques and styles that are used in every film you see. The list below is 34 films that would give anyone an overview of the French film history from the 30s to today. Now, I'm not going to go through and read all of these films, um, but I'll just give you a sampling. There's, uh, you know, Shoot the Piano Player, The Last Metro, Wages of Fear... Le Samurai, Delicatessen, Le Cirque, Le Cirque Le Rouge, um, Band of Outsiders, Alphaville, Story of Cheat, Diabolique, Micmacs, um, and then at the bottom can be considered French even though there are elements that make and not strictly French, which is Battle Algiers, Repulsion, and Z. So he and I went back and forth just kind of talking about which films to start with, etc. And then and I before also you go too far, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, before you go too far, Alphaville is on our science fiction list. So we yes, to, we're doing we'll Alphaville and Dark City, right? Yeah. Okay. So yes. Um, and one of the things that I had asked uh, Joe to do, I said, you know, hey, if we had to do some matchups, could you give us some suggestions um, of the list that you gave? And he responded, and I think these are some great matchups. Um, he recommended Les Samurai. You could do because I I had said that uh, John Woo's The Killer I know was heavily influenced by Les Samurai, and he said, well, you could do Les Samurai in the recent film The American with George Clooney. He also said, wow. yeah, he suggested if you were start just starting into French films, I would start with the films of Jean Pierre Melville since most of his work still stands up versus the works of Jean Renoir or the early films of Goddard and Truffaut that most people might find a little too slow and plotting for their modern tastes. Below are some possible French film matchups that I believe would be good based on the themes of the films. Now get this. Grand Illusion versus The Great Escape, Escaping Prison Camps During War, Wages yeah. of Fear versus The Hurt Locker, Tension Created on Screen Where You Don't Know If They Will Blow Up or Not. I like ah, that that's, one. Yeah, that's good. Diabolique versus many of Hitchcock's mid-career films, like Rebecca, Spellbound, Notorious, Rope, and Strangers on a Train. Clouseau was considered to be very much like a French Hitchcock until his collaboration with the Nazis hindered his productions after the war. He ended up only making a handful of great films in the late 40s and 50s. Here's another good one. 
A Prophet versus Scarface. The rise from nothing one day, one to mob boss in the end. Ooh. And then Legette versus 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys is based on Legette, but the original was groundbreaking in its day. Joe, these are fantastic ideas. And Brad, I would contend that we need to do um, some French cinema after we're done with science fiction. I, I, hey, you're the you're the one that hates the French people. So I do, but I mean, um, the only thing I didn't see on here, and you know, I'll, I'll say this: the the first two movies I remember ever seeing that my dad ever talk, took me to, and I can't remember which one was first. Um, was uh, Herbie, the love bug. <laughs> and um, I, I'm pretty sure it was a French film. Yeah, it is a French film. It's Jacques Tati's Monsieur Hollet's Holiday. And I think he took me to some festival to see that when I was just a little kid. And I remember liking it because there wasn't much dialogue. It was more um, physical comedy. So um, I am familiar a little bit of Jacques Tati uh, playtime and stuff like that. But uh, I think after we're done with the, the science fiction run... We should just uh, pick some of these matchups and, and maybe do uh, Brian's suggestion of. I mean, I like that Le Samurai and the American. Yeah, it, that's. I like fantastic. a prophet in Scarface too. I think that's really cool. Yeah, uh, Joe. I think you just. I hope I didn't just say Brian, but <laughs> um, Joe. I think you just gave us a lineup for what we're doing after this because those are fantastic ideas. I really appreciate. What I'm loving more and more about this 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 show is it's sort of becoming um, created by people outside of us and we get to talk film with other people that we just, I, I mean, I don't know this guy and it's awesome to get an email from him and just to, to go back and forth correspondence wise talking about something like French films. Yeah. I'm going to get an education. <laughs> All right. You want to read the next one? I will. Um, this one comes from Nathan from St. Louis and um, Nathan says, I just wanted to tell you guys, I love the pretension. You guys talk about films that you can't find anywhere else on the internet. I look forward to your show every week. You both uh, have said that feedback helps with morale, so it would be irresponsible not to enlighten you guys with how awesome I think your show is. All right. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you All so right. much, Nathan. All right. So he has a few suggestions. Um, first, um, I love the episode when you guys talked a little about yourselves before getting into the interviews is, it was, or reviews. Is, is he referring to when we talk about high heel shoes? <laughs> I think so. I think he wants to talk about, hear us talk about when we dress up as women. Yeah, Nathan, um, that's one of the few and only times I've ever done it. So, <laughs> um, As a listener, I love getting a little background on you guys. The reviews are the main focus, I understand, but giving the listeners a little info wouldn't hurt, which that was my point. Like, you know, we're just facilitators and I don't want the show to be about us, but if people want to hear us banter back and forth a little bit before, like, you know, that's totally fine with me. How do you feel about that? Oh, I'm, I'm totally cool with it. I mean, uh, whatever. I mean, like, you, like you and I are, are, are friends in real life. Like we talk to each other, you know, we just don't do this and don't talk for the rest of the week. So, you know, we, we know each other. You know, I, I think so. I talk to you as much as I talk to my wife someday. <laughs> oh, that makes me feel special. Um, and then he says, second, what else are you guys into? I've uh, heard you talk about video games. What about music, TVs, or comic books? Um, yeah, so do you want to tell us about yourself, Troy? Um, well, man, the center of my life is probably my family. Uh, I'm married, and I got two awesome kids, uh, Angelica, who's nine, and Cameron, who's six. And I'm, I'm trying to educate them all the time on film. Um but uh, as far as, like, obviously video games, my family plays video games. We're a video game family. 
I mean, this afternoon, me, my daughter, and son were playing multiplayer Uncharted 3, and then we got done, and my wife and I were shooting Nazi zombies off Call of Duty. Um, music, I like everything. There's not a particular genre that um, maybe country is not my thing, uh, <laughs> but uh, favorite bands like U2, Aerosmith, I'm a rocker, I guess, to, to a certain extent. TV, man, that... I have found more TV shows. Well, let me let me first say I kind of stopped watching TV after they canceled Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel because those are my favorite TV shows of all time. But um, I've discovered more television that I've liked because of the DVD market. So right now I'm working through season one of Dexter. Uh, I'd never seen it before. It's really good. Um, we do watch. In case you haven't, in case you haven't heard, Dexter's pretty good. Yeah. Um, uh, what was the other one that we're watching? Um, oh, Walking Dead. We we do watch that. I've been trying to catch that as it airs, but uh, I, I got to be honest. TV is one of those things that I just don't have patience for to see what happens the next week. I like to watch a show when it comes out on a box set and then kind of get through it. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, comics. I'm a Marvel guy. I do like the DC stuff, but uh, you know I grew up on uh, Spider-Man, Captain America, Daredevil, and Hulk were always my favorite. Um, right now, I'm reading Fables, I guess, which was a DC Vertigo series. Um, there's a bookstore that went out of sale, so I picked up a couple of trade paperbacks. So I picked up uh, Fables and um, what was the other one? Oh, um, the Walking Dead hardcovers. Trying to read the oh, comics. Yeah. So, yeah. what about you, man? Um. You know, I there's really not. I don't have a family or anything like that. Um, but uh, I do. Uh, I do enjoy a good video game. This week is going to be hard for me because I have. I like a good shooter, so of course, like any other good shooter guy, I'm going to be getting Modern Warfare Three. 3. Oh. Uh, Modern Warfare Three. <laughs> uh, man, the demo scared me a little bit. I'm not going to lie with with Battlefield Three. So I I might go back and get that, but. As of right now, that and uh, Skyrim are on my radar, so I, I'm a big – I don't know. I just – I like video games. You know, I, I do a lot of stuff um, during the day, and it's kind of fun to come home and, you know, do that. Um, TV is like my weakness. Um, I hate a schedule. Um, like sometimes I like to go in to work at like 7, so I'm off early because I just – like I hate doing the same thing every day, so – being bound by a time that a show comes on, I hate. So I'm like Troy. Like, I'll pay for Hulu Plus so I can watch all the stuff, you know, that's that's happened before, and I can, you know, watch it all at one time when I feel like it. And that's me sticking it to the man. <laughs> <laughs> um, as for music, like I'm a huge music guy. Um, Pearl Jam is like my favorite band of all time, and people have told me that like. I'm just a stickler for what I know because uh, the first time I heard Pearl Jam, I was like 10 years old, and they've been my favorite band ever since. And How's that new I, documentary, 20? Is it good? Oh, it's amazing. Oh, I mean, come on. It's amazing. I almost have a Pearl Jam tattoo. so I mean, <laughs> Almost. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got it, and I just have to go get it, and so I'm just debating. Like, it's hard. I have two already. This one is the hardest one because band tattoos – can be a little bit sticky, but you know they've been such an important, you know, facet of my life that I feel like I, I need to. Um, music uh, besides Pearl Jam, like you know, I, I like you know I'm a weird kind of person. I like a lot of weird like hip hop, like 
Wu Tang Clan is probably the most famous, but then I like uh, like Tech Nine and Jedi Mind Tricks and people like that that are kind of really hardcore hip hop. All foreign to me. I do just gibberish. That's what you just yeah. said. <laughs> um, comics again. I'm I'm a Marvel guy, but I've kind of fallen out um, with comics just because you know I like to run a lot and exercise, and I feel like. I have to give certain things up if I want to do that. And uh, sadly, I'm newly single, so I have to play the uh, field, as they say. So I'm out looking for Snatch every once in a while. <laughs> hey, your extensive knowledge of Blade Runner and Akira are going to get you uh, oh, get you a couple yeah. of phone calls, I bet, some emails uh, from the ladies. Yeah, yeah. If you're not, you know, wet right now, I don't know what will. <laughs> so, you know, I like when I saw this email when you forwarded it to me, the first thing I thought was, you know, I don't want to make the show not about the reviews, you know. Right. But, you know, I don't mind uh, talking about, you know, if you don't mind sharing some personal stuff, then I don't mind sharing stuff. I no, I, I think so. the personal stuff usually comes, like you said, I mean, we just kind of talked about um, our first impressions of, you know, Blade Runner and Akira when we saw it. And, um, uh, our personal life will come through and probably the stories because, a lot of times when we talk about these films, we may bring up films that have some kind of meaning to us that mean something particularly to an event that happened in the past. So uh, it, it'll be interesting where this thing goes. And, you know, I'm super, I don't know, I'm super glad Nathan is interested in us. Um, yeah. Yeah. By all I means. feel like I'm not really that interesting. I'm <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, when I when I saw that email too, I'm like, who in the heck really wants to know about me? I mean, maybe maybe I get some collateral with just a little bit of the film knowledge I have, but uh, no, that's that's super cool that we got feedback um, from Nathan and we got feedback from Joe too. So keep it coming. Um, we'd really like to hear, like I said, what your opinions are of our opinions on these films and anything that you want us to talk about. Send it in. We'll try and cover it. And what's that email address? Um, you can send your thoughts, comments, rants, raves, the whole nine yards to moviematchup at gmail.com. You want to talk about the website real quick, Brad? Yeah, our uh, website is reboundradio.com, and um, that uh, website just got a new contributor who is going to be working on some video game stuff, um, some new stuff. So we're always in the background trying to add new content because um, – my, my thing is is I want people to come to the website um, because if they come to the website, they'll discover all the other shows and stuff. Um, so it's important to kind of have this hub and a reason for people to come so then they can kind of – it's the business philosophy of like you know, you want people to be intertwined with your business as much as possible because if they are, then they have a harder time to leave. So, <laughs> well, and I mean, don't don't take this the wrong way. It's not it's not a business. We're not out to make money off no, the no, website no, or no, anything. No, 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 no. That's just that's just it, how. No, you're right. You're right. And I mean, I'm I'm really glad that this uh, show particular is becoming more um, created and influenced by the people who are sending emails in and giving us suggestions. Because Brad and I have a couple of you know things that we are going to put on the the roadmap. Obviously, we're going to get to some Tarantino here real quick, and uh, some Jackie Chan. Because uh, those are our, our two favorites. But um, I'm really, really excited about people kind of writing in and saying, hey, we want to hear about this or we want to contribute to this. And we're, we've got some stuff lined up, too, to bring other people on as a third party um, and talk about the films that you guys want to hear about. So, Brad, how, how do they follow you on Twitter? Um, I am at Inglorious Brad. Um, 
and we before we skim over all the Twitter stuff, we did have another person tweet at us about um, what we thought about the Akira remake, and I wanted to make sure that we mentioned. Um, I think it's a terrible idea, so I just wanted to get that out there. Um, I would think it's a great idea if you use white people. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> I saw some comment. I can't remember who it was that they had said that. Uh, I think it was the Star Trek guy. Um, uh, who Chris Pine? No, Taki. Is it George Taki? Oh, George Takai. Takai, something like that. I'm not. Yeah, Star Wars, not Star Trek. Uh, me, not not that guy. Anyways, I'm not making any sense. But I remember seeing a comment that he had said if they don't use Asian actors to put this film together, it would be an insult because Akira is such a classic and monumental Asian film. I don't mind a um, live-action version of it, to be quite honest. I just hope that given how much is already in the Japanimation in terms of content and themes and what they try and cover, that the live-action film tackles the same type of stuff and they don't just concentrate on the action or um, visual aspect of it because Akira as a Japanimation in and of itself is a fun ride. You know, it is sort of an action film and it's got a, it's a, you know, it's almost a horror story too in some aspects, but uh, I hope whoever puts that project together doesn't leave out all of the religious themes or social unrest themes or stuff going on in there that I picked up on and if they could put that to screen with real actors, especially with the stuff they can do with CGI today, I'd be all for it. But they won't. <laughs> if it's a Hollywood thing, they probably won't know. You're yeah. right about that. So anyway, so I just wanted to – and that was from um, uh, At Raw DLC, which is a uh, which is a, a website that does video games. They're based out of Australia. They're two good friends of mine, um, actually three good friends of mine, and I wanted to make sure that we mention them as well as – and I wanted to say that uh, there's a man named David McVeigh from Geek Actually who at the end of every one of his podcasts, he always talks about our website. And I wanted to let him know that we appreciate all the love that he shows us. So That's now awesome, you can man. go – yeah, you can go ahead and uh, – what is your – how can people get a hold of you on Twitter? Um, just follow me at Yen Chan Troy, Y-E-N-C-H-A-N-T-R-O-Y. And uh, we'll try and let you guys know what day we're recording, what movies we're going to talk about. So if you want to, you know, tw- is it tweet? Is that how you say it? Yeah. <laughs> a couple it's not of twat. Twat. Okay. If you want to send us a couple of comments or questions, we'll try and address those too. But um, man, I, I had fun. This this is the longest show. I I'm already I'm I looking at the time of be. it now. It's it's I, gone I on a long be. time. I, but I had fun. Yeah. We yeah. I thought it was very good. So uh, do we have everything nailed down? We're going to be gone at the end of uh, next week, so um, you know, recording's going to be a little different this week. So, uh, do we know what we're doing? Or well, um, well, I guess we'll figure it out because we'll either okay. jump into the Matrix and Ghost in the Shell, or we will do Alphaville and Dark City. We might take a break from Japanimation and just uh, instead of going back to back with that. Yeah, we uh, probably need to do uh, Alphaville and Dark City. Okay, but one of the things that Brad and I will be doing next weekend is we will be attending Whorehound in Cincinnati. Um, we hope to bring you um, some good audio from that because we do have a couple of things lined up to talk with other podcasters and uh, possibly some other filmmakers. So um, keep a listen for that. And as always, keep sending that feedback, um, especially, like I said, if you've got any other ideas for great matchups. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I 
getting feedback seems like it's uh, like a, a no big deal, but to us who we don't get paid for any of this or anything like that, hearing people like actually listen outside of our our circle is a, is an amazing feeling because we put this out in hopes that people will listen, and when you get that feedback that they actually do it's it's pretty cool oh yeah i'm just excited i know you know nathan and joe now that's awesome yeah. i'm talking yeah. movies with more people so all right well hey this has gone on way too long <laughs> but um i want to appreciate everybody for downloading and listening if you can leave us a review on itunes if you get it that way um but uh any last words brad not last words but not like last words you're gonna be dead or anything but. what about dead man walking here no no no, no. just okay no, well, you know, everyone, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Okay, we'll see you later, folks.